0: We're going to begin with the Shorter Catechism question uh, that we've, so we've been going through the Shorter Catechism from the Westminster Confession, and we are going to be looking at question 56. We're making our way through the Ten Commandments, and so the question this morning is, what is the reason annexed to the Third Commandment? And the answer is, the reason annexed to the Third Commandment is that, however, the breakers of this commandment may escape punishment for men, yet the Lord our God will not suffer them to escape his righteous judgment. And then you'll notice that some of the proof texts that are provided there come from the book of First Samuel. So you'll remember uh, the story of Eli and his two sons who were priests. And uh, they were just wicked, vile men. Uh, they, they profaned the temple in, in, in a number of different ways. And despite the fact that Eli knew about it, he did nothing other than give them a little bit of a tongue lashing. And this displeased God. So not only was God displeased with the two sons of Eli for doing what they did to profane the the temple, or rather the tabernacle, and to profane the office of the priesthood, but he was also angry with Eli because Eli did nothing to... uh, discipline them, to correct them, to hold them accountable for their actions. And so God eventually judges Eli and his two sons, and uh, he judges them in death. Uh, His two sons are killed uh, by the Philistines and the Ark of the Covenant is taken to the land of the Philistines. And then when Eli receives the news in shock, he falls backward in his chair and breaks his neck and dies. And so Uh, the the lesson to be learned here is that even though it might seem like profaning the name of god is not judged in this world like we think it ought to be judged sometimes god doesn't doesn't judge people according to our timing we can we can be sure that god is going to judge sin and 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 that god is going to bring righteous judgment he is going to bring righteous judgment and so again the question and then we'll answer it together is what is the reason annexed to the third commandment and the answer is annexed to the third commandment is that however the breakers of this commandment may escape punishment from men yet the lord our god will not suffer them to escape his righteous judgment all right amen well we will dive into the very last chapter of covenants made simple by uh, John T. Rhodes and we're going to be looking at the chapter entitled Covenant Life, Covenant Life. So we've been talking about all these different covenants, the Abrahamic, the Noahic or I should say rather the Noahic, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, right? then the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, all of these covenants that fall under the one grand covenant of grace. And the question for us this morning, and you'll see that I have that as our essential question, is how does living in covenant with God affect our lives? And that's a loaded answer uh, because some would say that now that we are under the dispensation of grace, um, the law is no longer applicable to us, that God doesn't have those uh, expectations of us to live a certain life because we're in Jesus, we can just live in freedom, however we want to go about it. Right, as long as we love Jesus, we're good. And uh, that that is that is the wrong answer. That is the wrong answer. That is not what Scripture teaches. And so I'm not asking, does living in covenant with God affect our lives? I'm asking, how does it affect our lives? In what way are we to live differently because we are? covenant people. And we're going to try to answer that this morning by looking at a few different objectives. First, we want to explore some good reasons why Jesus came to the world. We've been talking about that, so we're just going to review it. And then we're going to consider how the Holy Spirit's role um, played out in the life and the ministry of Jesus, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then moving from how how did Jesus relate to the Holy Spirit, we're going to look at how we as believers relate to to the holy spirit and how vital is the holy spirit's role in our lives and then finally we're going to try our best to properly apply the law right the the law from sinai specifically apply it to our lives as we live in the new covenant as we live in the gospel era so that's where we're going to try to head to this morning so first of all let's talk about why did jesus come why did jesus come what has been the grand purpose of the covenant of grace and and i'm going to ask you to to speak up this morning and and let's let's jot down i gave you some lines there to jot down a few good answers so what are what are some good answers to this question why did jesus come couldn't do what the law okay so he came to fulfill the law it's good why else okay bring glory to the father good purchase redemption for his people to provide for himself these are great keep them coming you guys have been in Sunday school there are a lot of different answers right we're all kind of saying in some way or another the same exact thing but some answers that I wrote down you can copy these or you can copy some of these other great answers I said you know to save us from our sins very basic right to save us from our sins, uh, to bring us back in right relationship with God. We fell out of right relationship with with, with God in the garden, and so Christ has come to restore that relationship. Um, He came to defeat the works of Satan, didn't he? Praise the Lord, right? He has defeated the prince and the power of the air, right? He has bound him, and he will forever bind him whenever he returns, And then, of course, we could say to glorify God, to glorify the Father through the redemption of the world. And these are all perfect answers. They're wonderful answers. John T. Rhodes, in in his chapter, doesn't disagree with a single one of them. But he says that there, there is an answer that is often forgotten. And he said that one reason that Jesus came was to send and baptize his people With the Holy Spirit. So there you go. An often forgotten answer is to send the Holy Spirit or to fill his people with the Holy Spirit. And so when we think about the death of Christ, the resurrection after his death, how he died in place for our sins and he purchased redemption for us, the Holy Spirit, through his ministry, all of Christ's accomplishments, And all of the purposes of the covenant of grace are applied to believers, right? God sends the Son, the Son completes the work the Father gave him to do, and then the work that Christ completed, the Holy Spirit applies it. He credits all of the works of Christ to us. He works righteousness in us, right? You could go to the Westminster Confession, you could go to the Catechism, and they lay all of this out oh so beautifully, but we... We need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. And Jesus came to give us and to send the Holy Spirit to us. So, we want to make sure that we make proper balance of this, however. Because there are are some um, denominations within Christianity who would say that the giving of the Holy Spirit is this Basically, a third work of salvation, right? You're saved. That is, you're justified. Then you're sanctified, right? You're separated from the world. The, the 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 desires of the world are taken from you. And then you're filled with the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance, right? Going back to Acts chapter 2. And they take Acts 2 and then several other places in Acts where the Holy Spirit is poured out. People speak in tongues. And they, and they make that... Um, They make that for every believer across all of time. In other words, they make it prescriptive rather than descriptive of a particular period within the church age. But Paul dispels of that. Paul, and I put it there at the bottom of the first page, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Look what Paul says. He says, to be filled with the Spirit is essential for salvation and is the reality for all genuine believers. Here's what Paul says, for in one spirit we were, how many? All baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. In other words, being filled with the Holy Spirit isn't a third work of salvation, it is not this supernatural next step up on the Christian ladder that you reach whenever you've gotten holy enough before God, right? He, Paul says that being filled with the Holy Spirit is part and parcel of your salvation. Why are you saved? Because you were filled with the Holy Spirit. He changed you who you were down to the very core of your being and he... Caused you to believe in Jesus Christ, and even now He is sanctifying you and making you more and more into the image of Christ every single day. Everybody here who has genuinely placed their faith in Jesus Christ—it's a glorious thing, I can tell you this morning. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's ama- thats an amazing thought to think on. And so Jesus came to fill us with the Holy Spirit. Let's back up. Let's look at the life of Christ and let's consider how he was an example to us of what it is to live a life in the spirit. What is it like to live a life in the spirit? You have to look at Jesus to answer that question. Now we're gonna get a little, things might get a little interesting here for just a minute, okay? Especially for those of you men in here who have um, been at Men's Theology Night the last little while, we've talked about this a little bit. We're gonna talk about it some this morning. But the second point, the next page, Jesus' earthly ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit. I have a discussion question for us. Did Christ accomplish his earthly ministry exclusively as a man through the power of the Holy Spirit? Or did he exercise his own deity as the Son of God? Any brave soul want to try to answer that question? Okay. Okay. uh if you Right. Yeah, that's good. And and uh, Philippians, right, the book of Philippians, Paul talks about how, how, how Jesus, he emptied himself, made himself of no reputation, but took upon him the form of a servant, took upon him flesh, right, uh, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, right? So what does that mean? Let's, let's look at what John T. Rhodes says here. And you tell me which direction you think he's leaning. I hope I'm not misunderstanding him and I reserve... The possibility that I am but look what he says here we now begin to see the importance of the Spirit being with Jesus all through his life on earth Jesus managed not all of this by switching off his humanity and doing it as God rather as a man he conquered through the power of the Spirit so it seems that John T. Rhodes is leaning more towards the direction that Jesus did exercise right miracles uh his his ministry of the word his knowledge of men's hearts etc etc not as god but as a man filled with the holy spirit right that he did all of this exercising it through the power of the holy spirit there are some who would who would advocate this um and if you want to know some names of some prominent Um, Pastors, theologians, I'll tell you after class I don't want to put them on recording this morning I'd rather them speak for themselves But there are some who would advocate this position That Jesus, uh, when he came to earth and was incarnate in man He didn't lay aside his deity in the sense that he ceased from being God Right? He was God, he always was God, always will be God He cannot cease from being God lest he cease from being who he is but what he did do is that he chose to not exercise his power as God. He chose to not act uh, in miracles, in knowledge, etc., through his divinity, through his uh, person as the Son of God, but he chose to only exercise his humanity. And that all that he did, the miracles he did, the knowledge of people's hearts that he had, uh, the, the being raised from the dead, all of that was done as a man through the power of the Holy Spirit in action. Not ontology, but in exercise. And, um... Sir? Sir? Mm-hmm. hmm Mm-hmm. God mm-hmm. to Sure. Yeah, and that's Thank you, yeah, and, and those are great points, and, and I have been wrestling with, with this throughout the week, this week, trying to get my mind wrapped around it, um, and so I'll, I want to I want us to try to answer that question as best as we can this morning and not get caught up the whole Sunday school class with it, so maybe if there are any questions with, with where I'm about to go with this and you want to talk about it after church, we'd be glad to do that and try not to fall into heresy when we do. Um, So I put there to take that quote by John T. Rhodes with a grain of salt, and then I said we must be careful in our conversation about the deity and humanity of Christ lest we fall into error or heresy. Here is what is non-negotiable. Non-negotiable, period. We cannot separate the deity and the humanity of Christ. They cannot be separated. And the question that you have to ask yourself whenever you say, well, he just exercised his... Humanity. He did not choose to exercise his deity. Um, the question is: Is can you can you can you be who you are without doing what you do? Right. The very the very thought right to be, even be able to think about that question requires that you be a human who can have the power to reason and rationalize. And so, could Jesus be God and not act as God? any more than can you be a human and not think about not being a human or not think about not being a human if that makes any sense at all right this is deep stuff i get it i don't want to get too caught up i put there the the chalcedonian creed because in the chalcedonian creed um this church council put it in beautiful language i'll let you read it at your your leisure but they put they put it in beautiful language that we cannot separate the de- the deity and the humanity of Christ. They are one in the person of Christ. When you talk about the person of Jesus Christ, you must hold together his deity and his humanity. And in, if in any way you begin to separate those two, you are in error. And this is this is. Historic Christianity, we have to be very, very careful here. And so I've said below the Chalcedonian Creed, I'll just read it off. Jesus fulfilled the work of his earthly ministry both truly as man and truly as God. As touching his humanity, he worked as a man full of the Holy Spirit. However, right, as touching his deity... He worked via his divine power and authority as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. We must hold both of these realities equally and fully. Yes, doing that, holding them both with open hand, is a divine mystery. It's a paradox. However, such mysteries exist regarding the incarnation of Christ in general the divine inspiration of scripture. How did, who wrote the New Testament, right? Man or God? Well, both, right? Well, how does that make sense? Good luck. The sovereignty of God balanced with human responsibility. How is God both sovereign and mankind? We are free and responsible for our own actions. Good luck answering that one, right? And other mystery, mysterious truths beyond the capacity of the finite mind to comprehend. All right so so the the answer is is that Jesus he acted as a man full of the holy spirit as touching his humanity but he also exercised his authority as god as touching his divinity and he did them both at the same exact time How did he do that I do not know Didn't come with an answer for that one this morning Uh-huh Yes. Yes. And that I Amen. Yes. Yes. That, I understand I would that. So, yeah, you would. Yeah. yeah, if you could wrap your mind around all of these different realities about God, then you wouldn't have a God worth worshiping, mm-hmm. right? You might as well find you might as well worship Zeus or Hercules. Right. Yeah, but the, our God, our God is, is infinitely above and beyond our ability to comprehend. And this is, one of those, this is one of those realities. I put there the Westminster Confession of Faith. They're not exactly talking about this topic, but I think what they said can uh, help us think through this topic. So just understand they're not talking specifically to this question, but they said in uh, chapter 8 and section 7, Christ in the work of mediation acts according to both natures. By each nature doing that which is proper to itself, yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. Right? And and, and, and in other words, um, the unity of Christ, you must hold both his divinity and his humanity together. And sometimes Scripture refers to Jesus as a man and yet attributes his humanity um, qualities of deity and sometimes to his qualities of deity it attributes uh, uh, man-like qualities like how can god die When, when, when the new testament talks about how how god died upon the cross right the second person how can the person of christ in his deity die right It's talking about his humanity even though it's using the language of deity these are again i don't want to get caught up in the weeds here But what I do want us to notice here at the bottom, I'll make this last point. As touching Christ's humanity, just as he was filled with the Spirit, so we will be filled with the Spirit. As touching Christ's humanity, just as Christ ministered through the power of the Spirit, so we do the same in the ministry of the church. In short, we look to Christ as the premier example of one who lives life in the Spirit as touching his humanity. Right, I had more I wanted to say here and, and some scriptures I wanted to discuss, but I'm looking at the clock and we're quickly running out of time. So I just ask you to um, just hold that in your in your minds and hearts and maybe we can talk about it sometime later. Moving on, then as touching his humanity. Right. We're looking to Jesus as our example of a uh, of the one who walked and lived a life in the spirit. And so now we want to look at how Jesus sends and anoints that same spirit to his people, right? So he anoints his people with the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit by which he ministered. It's not a different Holy Spirit, right? It's the third person of the Godhead given to us, given to us. Acts 2, 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Acts chapter two, the day of Pentecost, right? Very, very popular chapter in the New Testament. John T. Rhodes, I wanna read this. Um, he does a great job of comparing Sinai to Pentecost and, and, and others have done this. And uh, this is a great study to, to, to take on this week. If you wanted to compare Sinai with Pentecost, there's some great reading here but I'll just read what he said because he says it so well and he says it so concisely. Take a look at this. As Luke describes the scene in the first two chapters of Acts, we read of a greater leader, Jesus, going up in a cloud, fire and rushing thunder coming down and his people gathered below being filled with the Spirit. Luke is reminding us of another great covenant-making day, the day Moses went up In the cloud above Mount Sinai Fire and rushing winds thundered And down came the Ten Commandments That day the people learned That they needed to be holy But they failed badly This time at Pentecost, Acts 2 Instead of just bringing down rules One far greater than Moses Jesus sends his spirit down to highlight the difference 3000 people believed on the day of pentecost and that's the exact number we are told rebelled and were killed in the incident of the golden calf at sinai it's an amazing parallel right and there are other parallels that, you know there are other details to this that you could look into but but at, at sinai g or at uh, at pentecost jesus is sending down not just the law but the power to live that law out The power to fulfill the law, right? He is sending it through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that means that the Holy Spirit, friends, is necessary for us. We have to be filled with the Spirit if we are to live the Christian life. And there are no negotiations there. And so why do we need the Holy Spirit? There are many different reasons and and nuances we could get into here. But I just wanted to point out three. I'll point them out really quickly so that we can get to the last section of our lesson. But the necessity of the Holy Spirit is, is for the fulfillment of the covenant promises. In Jeremiah 31, God said, I'm going to put my law within them and write my law on their hearts. So how is he going to do that? Through the ministry of the Spirit. Joel two twenty eight, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Galatians three fourteen, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham. Now we're we're going to wait. We're going past Sinai. Let's go all the way back to Abraham. We're, We're stretching back into our covenant theology chapters here. Okay. The blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Well, what was the blessing of Abraham to the Gentiles? So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So Paul says that all the way back in Abraham, God had promised the sending of the spirit. To the people of God. All the way back in Abraham. This is not a New Testament idea. Exclusively. Right? This is going all the way back to Abraham. Well how else is he going to make the entire world of all nations, tongues, and peoples into the family of Abraham through faith? He can only do that through the power of the Spirit. So we have an implicit understanding here of The need of the Spirit in the life of the believer. So we also need the Spirit be for union with Christ. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you are nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. Paul says, Romans 8:10, but if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Christ in you, you in Christ, how? The power of the Holy Spirit is that union, right? It's that bonding agent, as it were, that unites us together. It's better than Elmer's glue or duct tape, everybody. Lastly, see we need the spirit for the power to obey. How are you going to live in obedience to the law? How are you going to live in obedience to the law of Christ, right, to the law of God? You have to have the spirit. Look at what the Westminster Divine said in 16.3. There, that is, your, Christian's, ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the spirit of Christ. And that they may be enabled thereunto, besides the graces they have received already, there is required an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them to will and to do of his good pleasure. So they're, they're stealing from Paul there, where Paul in Romans 8 equates the Spirit of Christ with the Holy Spirit. Same, same exact thing. And then I have a, an arrow there. Look, notice Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't do anything without me. So all of your doing is nothing if you're trying to do it apart from me, Jesus said, through the work of the Spirit. Last section then, we have about 15 minutes, and you'll notice I have a lot of fill-in-the-blanks here because I want this to be a discussion part. All right. Um, you didn't know you were coming to school this morning, right? This Sunday school, y'all, Sunday school. There's a, that, that, that that word in there. See, some of you thought you graduated a long time ago. Mm. Um, See, you see what I'm doing there? Um, So, life in light of the law when empowered by the Spirit. Um, We said at the beginning here that we're taking it for granted that living in covenant with God is going to affect how you live. It ought to. If you're truly in covenant with God, it will, won't it? And so when you think about the law, and let's go back to the law of Moses, let's talk about Sinai. Um, you have the moral, civil, and ceremonial law is a, is a popular cat, uh, categorical distinction between the different, the different types of law within the Mosaic law. And so I have a question there, and I want you to help me answer it, if you would, please. What are the differences between the moral, civil, and ceremonial law? Why don't we start with the moral law? What exactly is the moral law? Good. Good. That was a, a great answer, a, a full answer. Um, if I could just help to make it a bit more pithy for us, just for the sake of writing, yeah. Let's 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 make it pithy. Okay. So, first of all, the moral law is rooted in God's character. It's rooted in God's character. It's present in creation, right? This, it's present in creation. It's present in, 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 in the garden, as Tim said. And it is perpetually applied, okay? So it's rooted in God's character, it's present in creation, and it is perpetually applied. That is, it, it's always applicable fully and completely, you are to apply the moral law. There's never been a time where the moral law was and there never be a time where the moral law isn't. It always is because it's rooted in God. And if the only way that the moral law is gonna cease to exist is if God ceases to exist. It it is applicable, yes, to believers and non-believers, but the question is is, um, who's going to strive to apply it, right? Yeah. Civil law then. Um, the civil law is it's it's rooted in the moral law, but it's more so rooted in the Mosaic law. It's rooted in Sinai. Okay. The moral or the the civil laws is is rooted in Sinai. Think about civil. Like you have civil laws. How many of you evade the speed limit when you well? Don't answer that question. Um, how many of you cheated on your taxes last year? Anybody? No. Uh, right. We have uh, we have laws that we abide by, right? The children of Israel as a nation had laws that they obeyed, right? So the civil law, we're talking about the laws that applied to the nation of Israel. They applied to the nation of Israel. That's the key thing to keep in mind that they applied to the nation of Israel, and they have what we would call general equity. General equity that is there are lessons to be learned from the civil law right when god tells the children of israel to put a a, a fence basically what a parapet around the top of their houses right that's because that a lot of people in those days had flat top roofs and you know a lot, you know, you did a lot of a lot of things on the roof you know you hung your clothes you took your baths etc cetera, etc cetera. and so the parapet around the edge of the house was to keep people from falling off the edge of it particularly i would think children or you know somebody stumbling around in the dark right so how can we we can take from that we don't have flat roof houses and we don't do stuff like that on our roofs today at least not here in america but we can take from that the general equity that we ought to care for human life and we ought to do what we can to protect human life like so putting a um, fence around your house around your backyard if you have a pool is a good application of that law to protect somebody like a child from getting into your backyard and drowning in your pool it's not just a silly law i think it has some some applicability here from even the civil law in the old testament lastly then the ceremonial law it's rooted in the mosaic law yes but specifically the ceremonial law pointed to christ ceremonial laws like Clean food laws, unclean food laws, sacrifice laws. You can't mix two different types of um, uh, fabric together when you created a garment, you know, that they had to wear the tassels around their, uh, uh, around their uh, borders of their garments, things like that, right? Those are ceremonial laws. And why did Israel have those? Because them as a nation were ultimately a nation that God was using to prepare the way of Christ. So those laws pointed to Christ. And today we have New Testament parallels to some of those, right? Um, you know, we, we celebrate the uh, Last Supper, or rather we celebrate the Passover through the, last, through the, uh, the Lord's Supper. Uh, we, we celebrate circumcision through the covenant sign of baptism, right? So there are some parallels there, but by and large those things are done away with because Christ has come. We don't need something pointing to Christ, he's here. And we can look to the Old Testament ceremonial laws and get from them their fullness, okay? Let's dig in here though. Um, The next discussion question is, what are the three uses of the law? This is where you might start to see a bit more uh, direct application. How does does living life in the law affect you? Three ways, three ways. What are the three uses of the law? Who Who can name them? Okay. So they teach, yep, good, so we'll go one, two, three, uh, our pastor, Pastor David likes to put it this way, the first use of the law is a muzzle, it's a muzzle, it restrains society from evil, imagine a, imagine a world where there was no law in the books that it was a sin to steal or steal or kill, or commit adultery, Right? So the, the the law puts a muzzle on society. Secondly, it's a mirror. When you look at the law and the holiness that it requires, and you see yourself in that reflection of how holy God is, it reminds you of just how much you need the Savior. It reminds you of just how unholy you are and how much you need Christ. So it's a mirror, and lastly, it is a map. And this is where some people fall off a little bit was with the idea of a map that uh, the, the, the law in the Old Testament. It does genuinely show the Christian the life he or she ought to be living, a life of holiness and purity and sincerity unto the Lord. Right. The moral law, for example, the Ten Commandments, always applicable, even to you as a Christian living In the New Covenant era, living in the gospel, you and I are required to walk according to the law of God, particularly the moral law, right? Particularly the moral law. So it is a map. It tells you how to live the Christian life, where you're going, how to get there. Any questions or comments there? Muzzle, mirror, map. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, we're not so so we go back to the map there. We're not we're not following after the moral law in order to earn our salvation. We're following we're following the law because we have received salvation and we want to live a life that pleases God. We're we're following the map because we joy in walking in fellowship with God and in holiness with him. And that's a that's a beautiful thing that we get so much joy out of. Not because we're trying to earn anything, it's already been earned in Christ, but thank you, Lord, for the salvation that you have provided. How may I walk in fellowship with you as my savior? That's why we do it. And so that dis- that next discussion question, maybe we don't have time to discuss it, but we can at least look at it. John T. Rhodes says this, so good. Law without gospel is powerless. Gospel without law is pointless. Christ came to save us from sin, not for sin. The law can't save you because you can't fulfill it. You need the gospel. So the law without gospel is powerless, but the gospel without law is pointless. Why did God save you? He saved you not just to give you a get-out-of-jail-free card, right? We're not playing Monopoly, right? He gave you salvation. He saved you so that you are free to live for him in righteousness and holiness. He saved you to free you to live the law, to live holy. Does God care about we live? Yes. If so, how much? A lot. A lot. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul says what? May it never be. Some translations, God forbid. Heavens no. Gracious me. Are you kidding? Right? Translated a lot of different ways, couldn't you? Right, Wrath versus discipline. When we do sin as covenant children of God, when we do fall, you fell this week, didn't you? If you're like me, you fell a lot this week. right? You made mistakes. You sinned. You disappointed God. But does God cut you off? Does God throw you out? Are you out of covenant with him? No. No. Well, what does he do then? He disciplines you. As a father, a child, he corrects, he disciplines, he chastises. Why? To bring you back unto himself. To bring you back in the right direction. To set you on the right path. All right, let's get up. Let's go forward. Let's move on. I'm going to sanctify you more today than I did yesterday. Right? He's carrying us forward. He's disciplining us. And what about those people who, who just say that they're Christians, say that they're in the covenant, but they live... They live like the devil they they show no signs of repentance they showed no signs of holiness you would think they'd never opened a bible in their life but they prayed when they were seven and asked jesus into their heart they say right we have to ask the question are they truly regenerate are they truly filled with the spirit have they truly entered into a covenant relationship with god as a believer and we'll finish up there with the end is just the beginning. I'll read that off as we, as we look to the future, as we look to glory. I hope you're excited about Jesus coming back. I hope you're with the Apostle John who said, Surely, Lord Jesus, come quickly. The wonderful news is that even then, in glory, things won't be perfect in the sense of static, finished, complete, God is so immense that there will always be greater wonders to explore, always new riches to experience. The end is just the beginning. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this Sunday school hour. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the power through the Holy Spirit to live in covenant with you. I pray that these truths would penetrate our heart, that you would sanctify us and shape us into Jesus' image each and every day. And as we go into the worship service, that, Lord, you would shape us all the more and prepare us for your return. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.